One of the great difficulties in preaching is dealing week in and week out with eternal realities of ultimate relevance and trying to keep them from becoming routine. When I stand before you this week and I inform you that what I have to say today is the most important truth that you will ever hear And then I come up next week, stand at this very same pulpit, and say the same thing, that can soon become routine or monotonous and therefore easily disregarded. Yeah, yeah, you said that last week and the week before that. It's something like the person who uses too many superlatives. You know, if everything is awesome, if everything is amazing, then eventually nothing is. Those words lose all meaning if they're utilized with too great of a frequency. But when it comes to the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, superlatives are really the only form of speech adequate to describe the subject. If there is one true and living God, and He has revealed to us divine truth contained in a book, could there be anything more significant or relevant or important or interesting than to study this divine revelation, this book from God. And if in this book from God, this one true and living God offers us forgiveness of our sins and a reconciled relationship with himself, is there anything more worthy of our attention, our affection, our faith? And yet, so few of us grasp the magnitude of what we hold in our hands, the significance of what it is we do week in and week out when we gather to hear this word proclaimed. So few of us grasp the preciousness of what is revealed in these pages. So here I am again this week preparing to dive into Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to start by telling you that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Containing the most gloriously compelling, powerfully transformative truth in the entire cosmos. How's that for a superlative? A year ago, when we began in Romans, I told you that my hope and prayer was that God would use our study of this book as he has so often in the past history of the church to spark an awakening in our own church. Now only time will tell if he is answering or will answer that prayer. But now, almost exactly a year later, I repeat the same hope and this time with a promise. If you will dig in to Romans 8. And I mean really dig in. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Receive it. Embrace it. Love it. And plead with God to make its truths a living reality in your life. Then I promise you, whatever he does in the church at large... I promise you that he will awaken you from a dull and lifeless form of religion into a vital, life-giving, joy-filled experience of Christ. 
So that's my challenge to you as we begin year two of Romans by launching into Romans chapter eight. I invite you, I challenge you to press into these truths, feel their immense weight, and don't allow your familiarity with them to cause you to grow complacent with the text and to lull you into a kind of spiritual sleep. This morning, snap your soul to attention because God has spoken. And what he has to say is stunning. Romans 8 begins with a simple yet powerful statement of the gospel. It's there for you in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? That's about as essential, as basic as it gets. If you are in Christ Jesus, then God does not now nor will he ever condemn you for your sins. Now as the therefore indicates, this is a summation of a previous argument. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? It's, it's drawing a, 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 an implication from something that's been formally stated. Paul's bringing something to a conclusion. So what is it? Well, there are two main options. Okay? First, Paul could be drawing a conclusion from what he has stated in the immediately preceding verses Chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. If you remember back to the beginning of the summer when we left off at the end of Romans 7, Paul was despairing about the sin that remained in his flesh and waged war against his spirit. He despaired of his inability to be and to do what he wants to be and to do. And so he cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. And then he's reminded in verse 25 of the saving work of Christ on his behalf. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, that makes some sense of why Paul would then turn to glory in the fact that therefore there is now no condemnation for him, even though he still continues to wrestle in the flesh against sin. And that's a glorious truth. Even while I struggle against sin, even while I wrestle against the flesh, God does not condemn me. The problem is, That I don't think the second half of 725, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I don't think that fits well with the therefore of Romans 8.1. It's not obvious to me how Paul's conclusion that he is a divided man leads necessarily to the conclusion that he is therefore not a condemned man. Man, It seems to me that the therefore doesn't have anything to attach to unless it reaches over the second half of verse 25 and attaches to the first half. So I think there's a better option for trying to to track with Paul's argument here. 
The better option is that Romans 8.1 jumps all the way over Romans 6 and 7 to the end of chapter 5. And that Romans 6 and 7 is a long sidebar. A long answer to the objection to grace that was stated in Romans 6.1. In other words, having taken a long detour... To answer the objection of those who say, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul now, having answered that objection in in chapters 6 and 7, is now returning to his main argument, which he left off at Romans 5.21. So if you look back there with me, just three chapters earlier. Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's that mention of the triumph of grace over sin and over the law that took Paul on his long detour of chapters 6 and 7, in which he had to explain the relationship between the two, the relationship between grace and law. You remember chapter 6 and verse 14, where he came to the conclusion, therefore we are no longer under law, but we're under grace. But chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, are themselves really a summary of Paul's argument in the second half of chapter 5. So if you'll think back maybe about six months ago when we were in Romans chapter 5, you remember that there Paul presented Jesus as the second Adam, succeeding where the first Adam had failed and redeeming by his obedience and by his righteousness all those fallen in Adam's sin. Sin, condemnation, death came into the world through Adam's act of disobedience Grace, justification, and life came into the world through Christ's act of obedience, specifically his atoning death on the cross. All those in Adam by birth are condemned in Adam. All those in Christ by faith are justified in Christ. Jump over two chapters. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think that's Paul's line of thinking as we begin Romans chapter 8. So there you have it. There is the gospel in its simplest, most basic form. Okay? Here it is one more time. If you came in this morning wondering what the gospel is, let me give it to you in about three sentences. Sin, condemnation, and death came into the world through the first man, Adam's, act of disobedience. But grace and justification and life and reconciliation with God came into the world through Christ, that is the second Adam's, act of obedience, specifically his death for sinners upon the cross. All those in Adam by birth are condemned in Adam. All those in Christ by faith are justified in Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ by faith, God does not now nor will he ever condemn you for your sin. The eternally self-existent God 
who created all things by the word of his power, created man in his own image, created him to enjoy a special relationship to himself, has acted in time and in history to redeem fallen man. Man had turned away from God. He preferred himself to God, preferred creation to its creator. In response, God sentenced mankind to condemnation and death. But now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has removed the condemnation from those who are united to Christ by faith. Now that's, that's an immensely significant development in human history, isn't it? I mean, when you think of all of the, the great developments in the history of mankind, the smelting of iron, the establishment of an international language, Greek, facilitating the exchange of ideas across cultures, the rule of law that came in with the Romans, the printing press, transatlantic exploration, the rise of democratic governance, inoculation and the eradication of diseases which previously had plagued humanity, the invention of the telegraph, the telephone, electric power, the splitting of the atom and the harnessing of atomic power, the exploration of space, the world wide web, all of those advances pale in comparison to Romans 8.1. The condemnation owing to mankind because of sin has been removed for all those who are in Christ Jesus. God and man may now be everlastingly reconciled to one another. So this gospel cannot be routine. It cannot be boring. Facebook is boring. Netflix is boring. Justification, you'll think it is one day. Justification and reconciliation with God are astounding. So my prayer this morning is that God will open our eyes to see this truth and just how glorious it is. The question is though, what has transpired such that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What has happened to change God's judgment towards us, his judgment of us? Well, verses 2 and 3 answer that question. Four, okay? Why is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? For or because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, okay, providing more explanation, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, so you can see the way these four verses relate to one another by looking at the very first word of each sentence. Just trace it down with me. Okay, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For, or because, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 2, how? For, or because, God has done what the law could not do. Namely, justify us, remove our condemnation. The law couldn't do that, so God did it. 
by sending his own son to be condemned in our place. Okay, that's the way these verses function. Verse 2 explains why verse 1 is true. Verse 3 explains how verse 2 is possible. So let's look at these verses separately. The answer Paul gives to the question of what has transpired such that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. All right, what does that mean? Well, Paul is using the word law here in the sense of a principle or a power rather than the way he usually uses it, which is as a set of regulations or rules, okay? It's the same sense in which he used the word back in, in Romans seven twenty one and 23 when he said, so I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, that is, in, in, in God's rules and regulations, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, that is, a principle, Waging war against the law that is principle of my mind, making me captive to the law that is principle of sin that dwells in my members. So he's kind of playing around with the word law, and he's using it in two different senses. In verse 2, he's using it in that sense of a principle or a power that governs my life and my actions. So the law of the spirit of life would refer to the power or principle of the Holy Spirit who liberates us, who frees us from the power or principle of sin and death. So if you picture sin as an enslaving tyrant, okay, who holds us captive, who makes us obey its commands, which leads to death, and you get a kind of a picture of what's going on here. That's the state of all mankind by nature, by birth, in Adam. We are slaves of sin. We are condemned to death. But then the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, He comes to us through the gospel. When the gospel is preached, when it's explained, the Holy Spirit comes and He sets people free from their bondage and captivity to the law of sin and death. That's why I prayed this morning that, that He would do that. I'm preaching, I'm explaining the gospel, and through the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and He liberates sinners. He breaks their chains, He sets them free. And then he leads them out of the dungeon of law and into the sunlight of grace. Now, once again, I point this out. I'm going to come back to it at the end. This happens in Christ Jesus. You see it there? The law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is, only those who are in Christ, not in Adam, in Christ, experience, verse 2, this life-giving liberation of the Spirit. Everyone else remains in captivity in the dungeon of sin under the sentence of death. You're in one of two circumstances this morning. Either you're in bondage to sin under the sentence of death, or you are free in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of life. But then Paul realizes this isn't enough. He needs needs to take a step further to explain how 
the Holy Spirit has done this. So far in verse 2, he's only explained that it was brought about by the Spirit of life. He knows we need more information. Like, what about the penalty of sin? What about the justice of God? See, Paul has made it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3, for instance, that we're not the unwitting slaves of sin. We are willing slaves. We are complicit in evil. We sin not because we're forced to against our wills, but because in some perverse sense, we love it. Condemnation is not an unjust sentence passed upon undeserving victims. Condemnation is the just judgment of God upon sinners. We were not stolen away in the, in the dead of night and chained in the dungeon of sin against our wills. We chose this fate. We chose this slavery when we turned away from God, when we rebelled against Him. And condemnation is the just penalty for our treason. So what then of the justice of God when the Holy Spirit comes in and sets us free and leads us out of condemnation? What then of God's righteousness? What then of God's glory? There has to be a just basis for the liberation announced in verse 2. The law of the spirit of life cannot just set us free from the law of sin and death without destroying the justice of God and despising his glory. Our sin demands vengeance. So what did God do about that? Well, that's why verse 3 exists. It provides the basis, the foundation for the liberation expressed in verse 2 and hence the acquittal announced in verse 1. We who are in Christ Jesus are no longer condemned to death because we have been set free by the spirit of life. And it was right, it was just, it was righteous for God to set us free by the spirit of life because of what he did in sending his son to be condemned in our place. Look again at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what has God done that the law could not do? Verse 1, he's removed condemnation from those who deserve it. The law couldn't do that. And secondly, he set us free from the law of sin and death. The law couldn't do that. Well, how did God do it? Verse 3 gives us five truths which provide the basis, the grounds for the declaration of no condemnation found in verse 1. And they explain how the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death in verse 2. Right? Five truths I'm going to unpack in verse 3 that show you how the gospel works. First, Paul says the law was unable to, to remove condemnation or provide liberation. It couldn't do that. That's not its function. That's not its purpose. It was not given for the purpose of acquittal or liberation. The law simply commands what we are to do and be, and it promises reward and, and obe for obedience, and it threatens punishment for disobedience. 
In its most basic, most essential form, the law says to all men everywhere, to you, the law says you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live forever. Don't do this and you will die forever. That's the law. You can take the whole Old Testament law and you can boil it down to that command. That is the law of God incumbent upon every person, everywhere, in every time, in every circumstance. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. Don't and you will surely die. So the law sets the standard of righteousness, then it justifies the righteous and it condemns the unrighteous based upon that standard. What the law cannot do is justify those who don't measure up. It cannot justify the unrighteous. It cannot acquit the guilty. It cannot set free those enslaved to the power of sin and death. Therefore, If sinners like us are going to look to the law for justification and life, it's futile. You will not be justified by saying, well, I'm just going to try harder to love God and love people. I'm just going to try harder not to sin. That's an exercise in futility to think if I just clean up my act, then God will accept me. That is not the law's function. For one thing, you cannot clean up your act while you remain under the power of sin and death. And for another, even if you could, it would not cancel the guilt of sins already committed. Second, the problem, however, is not with the law. It's with us. Now, Paul's already made this point back in chapter 7, verse 13, when he said, Did that which is good then, he's talking about the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul says in a verse just prior, 7.12, that the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy because it commands holiness. It's righteous because it commands righteousness. It's good because it commands goodness. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law works perfectly for what it was purposed to do. If we were righteous, the law would give us eternal life. If you could love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you could love your neighbor as yourself, the law would pronounce life upon you. But you can't because your flesh is weak. The fact of the matter is we do not love God supremely and we do not love others selflessly. Therefore, the law can be to us only a law of condemnation and death. Third, so God did What the law could not do, weak as it was through our flesh. The law can only establish the standard of righteousness, then justify those who measure up and condemn those who don't. The problem is God desired to justify those who don't. 
He desired to justify the unrighteous, the ungodly. And so he took it upon himself to do so. So the point here then is that if you are unrighteous, if you're here this morning and you, you admit, you know, I don't love God as he deserves. I don't love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I don't love other people selflessly. I love them when it's convenient. If you know that you're a sinner, you can't look to the law to justify you. You have to look to God. You have to look to God to have your condemnation removed, to be acquitted under the law, to be set free from the law of sin and death. You must look to God and not the law. That is, you must look to God and not yourself, not your own righteousness, not your own law-keeping, not your own merit, not your own ability to turn over a new leaf and clean up your act. There is no hope of justification in you, period. You must look to God. For God did what the law could not do. Namely, he has acquitted the guilty. He has justified the ungodly. But how? Well, fourth, God sent his own son to become incarnate in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul chose his words here very carefully. God sent his own son in the likeness of of sinful flesh. Paul's paving the way for the doctrine of substitution, which comes next. The basis of our salvation, the basis of our justification before God is the substitution of the Son in our place under the law and the judgment of God. But in order to be a fitting substitute... The son needed to meet at least three qualifications. First, he needed to be like us in every way. He needed to be fully human. So Paul affirms that Christ took on flesh. He became incarnate. But in becoming incarnate, he could not take on our sin nature. Or else he too would be held captive by the law of sin and death and subject to condemnation and therefore unqualified to act as our substitute. And so, number two, the son needed to be like us in every way, yet without sin. He needed to be inherently and perfectly righteous, therefore deserving of God's bestowal of eternal life under the law. If the law sets the standard of righteousness, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, he needed to come in above that standard. And so Paul, Paul embraces both of these essential concepts. He needed to be just like us, and he needed to be sinless. Okay? Christ's true human nature and his true righteousness. Paul emphasizes this by saying that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. John Stott helps us here. He says, The Son came neither in the likeness of flesh, only seeming to be human, for his humanity was real, nor in sinful flesh, assuming a fallen nature, for his humanity was sinless. Rather, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh because his humanity was both real and sinless simultaneously. 
But third, he needed a third qualification. He needed to be more than a man in order to stand in for more than one man. He needed to be God incarnate. And so Paul emphasizes in this phrase Christ's divinity by pointing out that God sent his own son. Okay? The son of his own image. He who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, that's the one God sent. His unique, eternally begotten son. You see, only a man could substitute for man. Only a sinless man could substitute for a sinful man. And only God could save all mankind. All of that is wrapped up in that phrase, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, so that, number five, God could condemn our sin in the flesh of his son. Now at last, we come to the core of the gospel. How did God justify the ungodly without sacrificing his own righteousness and glory? How did God remove the condemnation from those who so deserved it? He did so by condemning him who did not deserve it in our place. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, a righteous judge must condemn sin. Only an unrighteous judge acquits the guilty. And yet that's exactly what God desired to do, acquit the guilty, remove their condemnation. And so God condemned our sin and punished the guilty and therefore maintained his own righteousness. How? Well, he did so in the flesh of Christ rather than in our flesh. At the cross, Christ, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And God, when, when Christ who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, became sin, then God executed the just judgment of the law upon him. He condemned Christ. He put Jesus to death. Therefore, justice is satisfied, wrath is poured out, and mercy can triumph. How? Through the substitution of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the place of sinners. That is how there is no, no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God has already condemned our sin in Christ. That's good news. I want you to think of the worst, most shameful thing you've ever done. Get it into your mind. Get it into your heart. The most vile, filthy, despicable, shameful sin you've ever committed. Now place it in verse 3. God condemned that sin in the person of Christ upon the cross. Therefore, God now no longer condemns you for it. You are free from condemnation under the law. You are justified before the law's demands. God looks upon you in Christ and he says, not 
guilty. Now what? Well, now that you've been acquitted of all charges, now that you've been justified under the law, what happens next? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I used to read this verse differently than I do now. I used to read it as if verse 4 said this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us, rather than what it says, which is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, I used to think that Paul was still talking justification, not sanctification. I don't think that's right anymore. I think what Paul means is that God condemned your sin in the flesh of Christ, verse 3, in order that you would be set free by the spirit of life from the law of sin and death, verse 2, in order that you would no longer be condemned, verse 1, in order that you would become radically new people who live according to the righteous requirement of the law. In other words, the removal of your condemnation is not the end aim, the final purpose of the gospel. God took away your condemnation by condemning your sin in the flesh of Christ in order that you would become a new person who walks in the righteousness of of the law. I have three reasons for this interpretation. First, turn over to Romans 13. Paul speaks of Christians fulfilling the law in chapter 13, which I think provides a clue for how we're to understand it here in verse or in chapter 8. Look at Romans 13 verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you see that language? It looks just like Romans 8, 4. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of of the law same language as Romans 8:4 so Paul conceives of the law much as Jesus did as essentially demanding love love for God love for neighbor and according to Paul in Romans 8 God condemned your sin in the flesh of Christ and gave you the spirit of life to set you free from the law of sin and death in order that you would not be condemned in your sin verse 1 but rather would walk in love. The second reason I I think verse 4 means what I think it means is because the Bible actually speaks of people who are righteous at the same time that it speaks of those who are unrighteous and says there's none righteous, no, not one. Then it turns around and says, well, this person was righteous and this person was righteous and that person was righteous. How do we fit those together? We're talking about those in whom the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Okay? By this, when the Bible calls believers righteous or says that they walk in righteousness or that they fulfill the law, the righteous requirement of the law, they don't mean that they're sinless. Rather, they mean that Romans 8, 1-4 has happened in their life. 
means that they've received God's mercy for the forgiveness of their sins, and they've received God's spirit to enable them to walk in holiness and love and freedom. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Luke, in Luke chapter 1, speaks of John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They weren't sinless. In fact, Zechariah's sin is on full display in the rest of chapter 1. What he means is that they had trusted in God for forgiveness and they had received God's Spirit enabling them to walk in love, that is to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And Paul himself in Romans 2.26 speaks of those uncircumcised Gentiles who keep the precepts of the law, who are accounted as Belonging to the covenant people while uncircumcised Jews who break the law are regarded as outside the covenant. In other words, there are numerous times when scripture speaks of those who keep the law, those who are righteous, those who are blameless before God. And what it means, what it assumes is that Romans 8, 1 to 4 has happened. That they've received by faith both God's forgiveness of their sins, and God's Spirit enabling them to walk in righteousness and love. Finally, this is the way that the whole Scripture speaks. All of Scripture speaks of the goal of the gospel being the holiness and righteousness of a redeemed people. Christ died to redeem a sinful people and make them holy. Justification is not the end of Christ's saving work. Christ died and rose again to bring a holy and glorious people into his everlasting presence, blameless with great joy. Let me give you just one out of many verses. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's essentially what Paul says in Romans 8.4. Christ died for you in order to remove your condemnation that you would walk in the righteous requirement of the law by the power of the Spirit. Freedom from condemnation is only half the gospel. It's the half we tend to focus on, but it's not the only half, nor is it the final aim. Christ died to redeem you both from the penalty of your sins and from the power of sin itself. He died to create a radically new people who live in sacrificial love and service to one another. And for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about how that looks, how it happens, and how we can walk by the Spirit and so fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. One point remains to be made, and then we'll be done. Who are we talking about? Everything I've said so far does not apply to everyone. Paul evidently wanted to make this abundantly clear because 
all three statements in this passage, all three sentences contain phrases restricting the application of the gospel to a particular group of people. Look at verse 1. Paul does not say, there is therefore now no condemnation. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are not in Christ Jesus evidently are still condemned. Verse 2, Paul does not say, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Evidently, those who are not in Christ Jesus are still in bondage to sin and death. Verse 3, Paul does not say, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He says, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if you still walk according to the flesh, then the righteous requirement of the law is not fulfilled in you. The people of the gospel, that is, the people for whom the gospel is true, the people to whom the gospel applies, are those who are in Christ by faith and who walk according to the power of the Spirit. That's why the main point at the top of your bulletin today says, you are free from the penalty and the power of sin if you are in Christ by faith and walk according to the Spirit. What it means to walk by the Spirit will be the subject of the next few messages in this series. For now, I'm just going to give you the definition. Here's what it means. I'll explain it in weeks to come. To walk by the power of the Spirit means to rely upon the Spirit's power to live according to the Spirit's word. To rely upon the Spirit's power, to trust in the Spirit's power in order that we may live according to the Spirit's word or the Spirit's command. That's in contrast to walking according to the flesh, which is simply to do what you want to do, whatever seems right to you. To walk according to the flesh is to make yourself the final authority on what is true and what is false and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil, what is possible and what is impossible. That's the way the vast majority of the world lives. They live according to the flesh with themselves squarely upon the throne of their life. And if that's how you live your life today, you have no justification whatever to think Romans 8.1 applies to you. Because you're not in Christ. Because the law of the spirit of life has not set you free from the law of sin and death. Evidently, God has not condemned your sin in the flesh of Christ in order that you may walk according or in the righteous requirement of the law. You've got to have both. If you are to embrace Romans 8.1 and say, yes, This is true of me. I am not condemned. I'm forgiven. I'm acquitted. God does not judge me for my sin because he's already judged my sin and condemned my sin in Christ. If you're going to claim that for yourself, then it had better be true that you are relying upon the present power of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to the Spirit's word. The two go together. On the other hand, 
If you can say that the word of God is your final authority, the word of the spirit, the spirit inspired word, if this is your final authority on what is true and false, right and wrong, good and evil, possible and impossible, and if you rely upon the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to believe and obey that word, then everything in this gospel is true of you and it always will be. So think of the freedom and the joy that is packed into that one sentence in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation for past sins. No condemnation for present failures. No condemnation for future stumblings and mistakes. No condemnation now. No condemnation ever. And all you must do is embrace by faith what God has done for you instead of what you can do for yourself and what God will do in you instead of what you can accomplish by your own power. How do you do that? Well, let's bow together and we'll pray. If you want to be included in those who are in Christ Jesus, and therefore those who are not condemned, those who are free by the spirit of life from the law of sin and death, those whose sins have been condemned in the flesh of Christ in order that they may walk in love by the power of the Spirit. If you you want that desperately from the depth of your being, if you want that to be true of you, then I would invite you to lift up your heart to God in a prayer like this. Oh God, my sins are many and I deserve your judgment. I have despised your glory. I have treated you as insignificant and unimportant and boring rather than recognizing your supreme worth. This morning I am guilty and I am undone. I have no hope of forgiveness apart from your son. I have no power to change apart from your spirit. Oh God, have mercy on me. Justify me by the merits of Christ. Justify me because you condemned my sin in the flesh of your son. And fill me with your spirit. Change the way I think. Change what I love. Fill my mind with thoughts of you and my heart with delight in you. And help me to walk in love. Help me to renounce sin and evil And make me generous and kind and compassionate and forgiving and trustworthy. I don't want to live in sin and in guilt anymore. I want to be free in Christ Jesus. Set me free. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.